the Fourth Planning Exchange podcast, and thank you to all of you who've downloaded our podcast so far. For a complete list of our podcasts and speakers, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org, where you can find more information about our speakers as well as a list of upcoming podcasts to look forward to. Today, we're very excited to be talking with the wonderful Jane Monk, who's held a range of high-profile state and local government positions in her 30 years of experience and is currently a director for the inner city for the Melbourne Metropolitan Planning Authority. But who is the real Jane Monk? Today we'll be discussing Jane's ideas and thoughts around human conditions and how her empathetic nature has shaped her life and career to date. Thanks, Jess. Jane, would you mind giving the listeners a bit of a brief bio? Okay, Peter. Well, I was born... Um, some considerable number of years, some 60 years ago in East Africa, in, in, in then Tanganyika, now Tanzania, on a gold mine on the shores of Lake Victoria, but not very far from the Serengeti Pain and then also the Olduvai Gorge, which is where um, uh, Lewis and Richard Leakey uh, did a lot of uh, discovering of the original sort of Homo habilis, Homo sapiens sapiens, uh, which made a big impression on me, I think, especially as a geologist's daughter who was looking back in time to look at the rocks and uh, so forth. But So that made quite an impression on me. I left East Africa. I travelled to the UK with my folks who spent their time trying to get back to Australia, because that's where they came from, in order for, to look for diamonds in the Kimberley, which was a successful mission on the part of my father. And... Uh, and I came, we came to Melbourne, and that's how I came to Melbourne, because the stock exchange was in Melbourne, and you had to raise capital to have gold mines in Argyle. Uh, the old days of Collins House. And, um, Jane, how did you uh, end up in planning from there? Well, I think uh, that, that influence of sort of digging back in the past suggested to me for some time, and being mad classical scholar, that I would like to be an archaeologist. And anyway, I went to the University of Melbourne Open Days in my final years of school and came across a Jeff Floyd who later was uh, headed up Parks Victoria and was at Melbourne Council. He suggested to me that if I was looking for a career I should not look in the past but look to the future. So I, and he also said there was a terrific historic cities course in the planning course and that I should look to that and I thought well that might be a good idea, so I put it down on the list and was surprised at being successful at getting in then because there were only ever 12 applicants every year at that stage. It was hard to get in. And there, there were very interesting people that were in at that university at that stage that um, I think have still gone on to be important people. And the, uh, you mentioned the human species and the condition. How has your empathy in the human condition shaped your career? Well, I think I've found that people are a study in themselves and, and how we live and how we'd like to live and how we can help others to live better than they do um, is, uh, is something that sort of comes out of that study. And uh, people like Margaret Mead, uh, anthropologists and sociologists, uh, have, have been quite shaping of my thinking in that regard. And uh, participation in planning, moving on to participation in planning, mm. uh, how, can, how can we uh, get to do it better? Um, how do we fight that knee-jerk reaction to change? I think my first job uh, when I left university was with the City of Melbourne, and it was just at the time that the 
uh, 75 strategy plan had been released and my first job was working in the community planning sphere, uh, working with the communities in Carlton, working in the communities in North and West Melbourne. And uh, it was really fantastic to be able to have a plan that had some scope and vision but work with communities around how to put the kind of uh, next layer onto that plan. And I think you, in that sort of uh, inter, an intelligent discussion with community to see how uh, they can come, we can come together to find sort of useful solutions, how we can actually balance, uh, you know, the classic words in planning, balance some of those competing objectives. Uh, and, 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 put, and so people can see the trade-offs. You have to have the conversation. I think that one of the real problems in planning is that when we, uh, when we engage, it's often over a planning scheme permit objection form that starts off by saying, the council thinks that you're going to be detrimentally affected, so what's your view about this project? So you sort of have a, an immediate kickback as though we're again, you know, there's something, a problem, I must, I must, I'm on the back foot, I must kind of defend. And so we don't necessarily engage, I think, in a way that, that means that we have a, a, a positive discussion. It's about, uh, it's about if someone's making a decision, let's ask other people how we can make that decision better rather than necessarily fight. So do you think we've gone backwards in terms of our consultation efforts? Um, well, I think we possibly have. Mm. I think we've now sort of loaded it up. We've we've mm. so um, we've sort of gone overboard in some way in the way we engage. I think you can get some areas where where the com local communities maybe had it's been just weighed up with consultation. We've mm. been working recently in the Footscray area. I don't know how many plans and plans and plans and plans that we've had there. We'd just like to be seeing some action. Mm. And I'm a great one for some action because it's only going to be through the action that speaks louder than words that we can actually show uh, mm. what we can, uh, what the benefits of that of change can be. Mm. Mm. So you think we've sort of overcomplicated our engagement techniques? I think we may have. Yes, yes, yes. I think we may indeed mm. have. Yeah. And Jane, you mentioned that change planners as urban change agents. Uh, can you tease this out a little bit? Yeah, well, that's um, that's a favourite um, little mantra or or naming that I have um, taken on board in my career when I work with uh, teams and members of staff. I think it's sometimes, uh, particularly when I was working with a department, to be saying to people, "You're planners, yes, and what you're doing is you're dealing with change." And if we know that most people have have a difficulty understanding change. In fact, we fight change. The brain, uh, in the deep part of your brain, is resistant to change. Uh, the fight and flight uh, mechanisms kind of come in into play with that. And you know, I, and so as as people who are essentially out managing change, we've got to see ourselves. And so it's like a bit of an authorizing um, framework to put to the planning profession is to see ourselves as change agents or urban change agents. Uh, sometimes creative irritants is another one I quite like, but <laughs> urban change agents. And I think if you tell people uh, uh, within the profession that that's what we're 
what we're about, rather than being status quo agents. So we have an awful lot of planning that is actually about maintaining the status quo. And for a very long time, it's been how do we keep it as it is, rather mm. than let's, um, let's explore the possibilities of change. And in doing so, let's be across it and, and leading and guiding it, rather than having it come and trip us up when, it when it's going to happen inevitably. Is that potentially a reaction against modernism, the modernism we saw in the 60s and 70s and the, the, the quiet technocratic planning changes that changed whole neighbourhoods, putting huge roads, people push back, mm -hmm. that modern anti-modernism? It is an interesting thing to say that we that we have a, a, a sort of a lowish density city that is full of hip roofs and when we started putting flat roof modernistic type buildings in, uh, we can cope with them when they're in shopping centres, uh, but we can't cope with them in our little built up areas. Unfortunately, uh, those buildings are very lacking in their capacity to cope with sort of 21st century technology like uh, solar PV panels and water and so forth. They look awful on them. So we've got, so there is a, it's a fight back against that. However, we've doubled Melbourne's housing since 1969 and a lot of that change has um, been captured by, I think, a, a more of a modernist thing in any event. So. Do you think there's a, um, a marketing strategy almost that needs to accompany planning to demonstrate to people why it's such a beneficial thing to do? Hmm. Yes, I think we're very, we're very poorly served, I think, by planning by the media. Mm. I think the media, unfortunately, is captured by the anti-change. I mean, there's sometimes when it's fantastic, so the Give the Yarra a Go campaign uh, captured <clears throat> that then preceded South Bank and Southgate was fantastic, but um, I guess in many ways we have a situation where the media is captured by the anti-change, and I don't like to see it as us and them, mm. but we don't, as a profession or as a, you know, with local government, as, as, as a way of, of people representing community and, and trying to identify where we want to go as a community, mm. I don't think we get that story right. I don't think we get it out um, to the community as to what are the benefits of change. So we always know what we like now, so we're very keen, uh, that's very familiar with us. But because we haven't got very good ways of explaining uh, how that, um, how change might happen, we tend to get a, goes with the narrative gets a bit. Is that because people are anxious about the future? Yeah, we are anxious about the future. Um, it's a, it's just a human condition. But, but maybe it wasn't a condition hmm. a while ago that people looked forward to things hmm. and they thought the future was always going to be better. I'm thinking hmm. of that yeah. progressive thought. Well, I suppose just going back, you know, I said before that um, since 69 to now, we've doubled the number of dwellings in Melbourne. And I would say on any measure, Melbourne is a better place, a much, much better place. I was looking at some photographs of Melbourne during the building of the um, Underground Rail Loop, uh, and it looks like, this is no dis 
no disparagement of Geelong, but it looks a little bit like Geelong today. My, my hometown, James. <laughs> but, I was getting a hard. I was getting a so I'm, I'm I'm interested to know that Geelong is thinking about what it could do for a postcode 3000 equivalent to try mm. and get that vitality and what. So that Melbourne has def that. So that change has been a, a great benefit. So we shouldn't be frightened of that change in an urban sense. So we're obviously frightened about social disadvantage and and the, and the implications that that might have for unrest. And go to Greece and see what that you know walking down, uh, going through the main street of Athens a couple of years ago during all of that unrest. That you can, how can this, how can these people, these residents of Athens, be trashing their city when it's their greatest asset? But it's because they're so. There is such anxiety there. Mm. Mm. So as an urban change agent, mm -hmm. um, what were your insights from your time at VCAT? Did you find that you were able to achieve urban change through that role at VCAT? Well, VCAT gets something like 6% of all of the planning permit applications, mm. uh, so it's not got the kind of main stuff. But what I think I achieved at VCAT was to... Um, was to first of all be a person who could empathise with all parties mm. and listen. I think people really need to listen. And then in explaining and often giving oral determinations as well as followed by explaining, looking people in the eyes, what it is and how I've come to that conclusion and talk about the balance so that there's a comprehension mm. of the direction of the decision rather than maybe just a more bland what's the problem uh, and, and often in law one of the real problems in law is that you go off and you get a challenge you always say yes that was wrong but you never get if you did it this way it would mm. be much better so th that jurisdiction has some difficulties but I think I made some differences in that regard at VCAT and, and I certainly went and looked at a lot of the stuff that I that I was responsible for making decisions on and mm. I'm not being wholly disappointed <laughs> That's good. And uh, plan planners are storytellers. Um, how do we create good stories from planning? Uh, is it possible? When we were talking about the media before. Hmm. How is the planning storytelling going? Well, it's I say a t it's a t it's a tale that we don't necessarily get out the facts around. So, um, if if people people tend to a lot of planners, say the status quo, will say, well, I've got to do some planning. So they paint a picture and it looks very pretty, uh, but they haven't asked anybody whether anyone would ever be able to build that. And so, and then everybody thinks that's a very pretty picture and we'd like one of those, thank you very much. And uh, the, um, so we're telling a wrong story. So in telling the stories, we've got to tell more We've got to give more evidence in that. So we've got to get the facts up there with the narrative. I think we've got to uh, say I'm very keen to, to talk about the sort of the growth challenge of Melbourne, uh, the fact that we've got to, again, double our population in the next 40 years and do it well. Mm -hmm. um, if we just say that's a problem and, and run away, that's, we're not going to get anywhere. So we, let's talk about that. Let's then put some more truth around that story about what it costs to build things let's let's bring people with us instead of having a it's an anti-developer anti-community let, let, let's try and bring these people together and let them exchange 
some of that actual, the factual knowledge about how to make things happen in order to address those challenges. Do you think Melbourne's on the right track to double its population? Absolutely. Think? I'm yeah. very confident. Okay. Um, very confident that we can find in our established areas, areas that have the possibility and potential to be able to, to, to be renovated. Mm. So it's just like any house gets to a use-by date, any mm. precinct can get to a use-by date. We've, we've had economic changes in parts of Melbourne that now they're eminently suited to a renovation job. Mm. So, uh, it's Jan, really Jan, on that point, is there enough study into how the city works, commute times, employment shifts, um, demographic changes, inequality, and do you think there's enough study? I think there is enough study. It's it's um, it's we had. I think that the the the, um, the Plan Melbourne project brought together quite a lot of that analysis. You can't get to, to reach into everything, but again, I think that's perhaps going back on the earlier question. That's that's some of the fact factual data that you need to to put out there. So, for example, if I said that. Uh, we estimate that there's 14 million trips per day now, and in 40 years there'll be 24 million trips per day. Well, we know that we can't fit all those on the roads because we know th that we've got now, because we know it's congested now. So we say, well, we've got to shorten those trips. We could get twice as many trips in if they were half as long. And so how do we then talk to our community about making places where you have half the trips half as long mm. and you start to say and if you have a trip that's half as long then you might be able to get on a bike or walk it and so that brings you into talking about things like 20 minute cities and and so forth and mm. which are eminently sensible facts around which you can have conversations mm. with people rather than say we need more this or we need more that and we need it yesterday well it, it brings us to the point of uh, academia um, a very important component to the planning world. How can their contributions be better, do you think, in informing this whole discussion? Well, you heard me earlier say my university days were absolutely fundamental to me and some of the people that we met were have been great uh, leaders, I think, in planning that, that I was associating with then. But an academia has a, an ongoing place. It's with, I nurture our new urban change agents and students. I do think that there are some, uh, I, th I think we get a bit wound up in the media using um, experts that perhaps have had less expertise or ex exposure to re the planning reel, um, and that that rather tends to colour the, the perception, I guess, of what, what I said to you earlier, the painting of a picture that isn't a real picture. We have to paint a real picture, and we have to get a community behind understanding the real picture so there's not we're not served well if if our academics give us a kind of a, I shouldn't say it but a wet dream rather than a real vision mm. 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 we were talking earlier about um, new development and how we um, present this in a way that is beneficial to the community um, how do we how do we tell people about the value capture of new development? How do we communicate that? Mm. Well, we have to, I mean, some people, and I think I was listening to Stuart Morris's um, uh, interview on your, on the, 
a broadcast, broadcast channel, yeah. internet, internet yeah. broadcast. And he was talking a bit about sort of road pricing. So we have to know as a community that um, things are very expensive. They, get, mm. they don't get any cheaper to build roads and railways and even bike tracks and gardens and parks. They don't get any, any cheaper. So we need to find ways of, um, of, uh, of ensuring that when we pay for something like that or we're going to put something like that in, that we put enough other things in to be able to leverage off that. So it's, you know, we've talked recent media about business cases and things, but we do, you do need to actually really get a benefit out of things and to get a community to understand that uh, that in doing something you're wanting to uh, be able as a result to deliver some other goods that will go with that mm. good community you know community valued community assets that mm. we want to to take with us it's I think the community understands that but it's not can't be done in five second grabs it's got mm. to be done through considered discussion yes. or, or setting it out. So there's been quite a bit of discussion recently about emerging housing models and The Age recently publicised an article referencing Leanne Hoddle um, noting Melbourne's hyperdense skyscrapers when compared with other cities. What do you think about this? <laughs> well, um, again, I think we might have, The Age might have got it slightly off. Uh, their emphasis was perhaps uh, not the same emphasis that Leanne has, or indeed I would have. So Leanne's um, Churchill uh, report is a good piece of work. Uh, she took a hypothetical mm. uh, because, uh, in all honesty, the block that was chosen and compared with other places, it was hypothetically, if this was built like this, how would it compare with anywhere else? And so uh, I don't believe that that would ever have eventuated in Melbourne. <laughs> so that's you know we have to be realistic about this however what the point that she makes is that we do not have that the same suites of uh, planning uh, framework controls that those other cities have and the one of the key ones is plot ratio mm. so I was brought up on plot ratio in the central city in Melbourne in the in the 70s and I think it might have lasted into the 80s, and it's still down St Kilda Road. But we don't really use plot ratio. Mm. And they're I think still in the planning scheme, aren't they? It, it's yeah. sort of policy, but they're not. Mm. They're not as a mechanism that you can um, perhaps uh, use for clarity for the development industry as the kind of the nature of the opportunity that a particular uh, renewal area presents, mm -hmm. and. Uh, and I think that might allow them to better understand whether they're going to, how much they should pay for it. Often we've been finding it's a case of how many car spaces could I cut on this? Therefore, how many dwellings can I, would that go with those car spaces? Therefore, that's how big I think I can do. And so mm -hmm. we're using, it's an extraordinary use of car parking, as always, to, to <laughs> generate. Whereas if we've got an understanding of the kind of yield, and that's what, um, that's what um, Leanne's, paper is essentially about and then if we have an understanding of yield we can put the infrastructure that we need to go with that we have more clarity and an evidence base mm, about that definitely. and then on top of that you can also have interesting opportunities for bonus systems mm. where you can perhaps start to talk about 
things that you might have a community benefit that could that could be an incentive that goes with that bonus. Yeah. So I'm in, I'm interested in exploring that. Well, with the housing models <clears throat> you're alluding to, Jane, is there enough diversity in our in our housing? I'll call it market. Mm -hmm. Well, I suppose the biggest thing that there isn't diversity in is uh, we've got more single detached dwellings than we can point a stick at. They're not a, an endangered species by any means in Melbourne, um, and they are mostly three-bedroom plus. So people often get very excited about the fact that a lot of more recently uh, developed, uh, approved housing is one and two-bedroom and, and a smattering of three. So across the broad range, I think um, we could certainly have a lot more one and two. Even in the in the sort of public housing, we know that that the high-rise 60s apartments were mostly three-bedroom, and in fact the occupants would be better off in would be have are more suited to one and two-bedroom apartments. They've, the demographic and the nature of them has changed. So we actually have an overabundance of three-bedroom. It's just that we've got to get the mix right and as we move back into established areas the established areas will benefit from more one and two bedroom stuff and get that diversity. And, which raises the question lost in the suburbs. It's, it's, the suburbs aren't a sexy field of planning. Mm -hmm. uh, have we given enough attention to rejuvenation and how do we start? We haven't given enough attention to rejuvenation. They've been um, a difficult Area. So someone like an organisation like the MPA has done a very good job of setting up land supply, unlocking that capacity in the greenfield, but its, its new task is to unlock capacity in established areas around precincts that, it's, that have been earmarked for substantial change. And they're precincts which we would anticipate have less controversy in terms of in my backyard mm -hmm. than other. So I think that that's um, an area of the suburbs that we need to go back and revisit uh, in, in hopefully a less controversial way with hopefully uh, meaningful uh, visioning of, of opportunity sort of around storytelling and how we can deliver this. Uh, uh, integrated with transport wherever we can so that we can bring those other 20-minute principles into mm. it. Um, so it, it's... And then we have to, as you said, we, we've got to find a new uh, physical form for that. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, what we need to bring mostly with that is, is a really good public realm so that, uh, so that we... As we move out of our backyards, we have... Off, or as we moved into backyards, we forgot front streets so mm. we need to create that public realm to um, to support the the higher density form which is essentially an urban response which is what we see in Carlton and what people love in places like Carlton the suburban response of putting it all in the backyard and leaving the street to the car is a is a it doesn't help so mm. if we could get that we'll get we've got to get that public realm to go with any change of of, um, of uh, typology. Is that fighting the traffic engineers though? I mean the public realm is very dictated to, as you say, by the requirements of cars. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Getting around the suburbs you need cars. Mm -hmm. There's tension there? There certainly is. Um, one of, in I think in the last five years, I think some of the road authorities, uh, ten years, seven years, 
there's been a definite uh, recalibration of the of the use of road space. So it was definitely a space for the car and anyone else. Don't dare touch it. You'll you know the primacy of the car. But we are now realising that at least uh, that public transport is a way of keeping giving more capacity back. Um, and you know some of the adv advertising of how many cars you can get compared to a bus, compared to a train, compared to a thing, and uh, and I think uh, they're also seeing that whole war. I think there is an emerging, and I think it's pretty well it's starting to be quite established of the the, the multiple roles that the street network can can perform. We've just got to go out and do it, and not get too uh, yeah bogged down in. Uh, slip lanes, turn lanes and so forth. <laughs> so in, the, in this rejuvenation that we've been talking about, um, how do we accommodate affordable housing? Well affordable housing, uh, housing ceases to be affordable when there's too much competition for it. Uh, and we've, we're not, we shouldn't be too proud that we're a fifth most expensive city in the world in which to own a house. I think we're now the sixth. London has just beat us. Jane, this is ridiculous. I mean, we are blessed with a f abundance of land. Mm. How can Melbourne be the fifth or sixth most expensive place to live in the world? It's just compared to all those other cities that have got chronic problems. Mm. How can it be this? Well, it's, it's a very lovely city, so there's obviously a real desire to get there and competition, lack of, you know, that's the supply-demand equation thing, that's how that goes up. And we've, and it's also a national sport to wait, to, to follow your house price going up. It's an absolute it's national sport. It's a terrible sport. thing, rising house prices, because it yeah. forces young people out of it's the It's a market. very hard thing, so we've got to find, it's very important, just pointing out that uh, we look to how we how we work around this space mm. and what we do about it. So we're trying to build supply on the fringes, but that's not the total solution. We've got to build supply in the established areas where we can. We've got to put it where you spend less money on travelling around because you don't need to as much. We've got to, we've got to utilise the existing infrastructure that we have. Uh, we've got to use the other side of the, the counter flow on our road networks why we shouldn't be we don't have to spend vast amounts of money building more roads just use the roads and or the train line the yeah. other way around I'm very happy to have more housing in the centre because it's very easy in the centre to get on any train line going anywhere to Box Hill to from Broadmeadows to Frankston so and anything in between so mm. we, we've got it, I have no difficulties in putting more in the centre to go out but also I think we've got to put more in the middle to be there where it is and where we want to grow it. So how do we facilitate the affordable housing you think? How do we make it happen? Um, so sometimes it's, in, our, in some parts particularly in the centre of Melbourne, uh, the housing costs have become too much for some people that legitimately need to work in the centre, so we call those the key workers, uh, nurses, childcare workers, the barista, where would we be with that? And it's how, how long a travel trip do they have to have to come in? Uh, however, there are mechanisms to look at affordable housing, and I think one of the important areas to grow is the community housing sector, to, to enable them to have a more of a role in this space. 
we've got to be careful that it's not at the expense of overall housing costs uh, so that we don't take it, uh, don't see it as a total panacea for all of, of, of the housing dilemma mm. so we ca if we take the if we make some housing pay uh, for the affordable housing and as a result that housing goes up in price and the and the pool of housing overall goes up in price we've actually gone backwards mm. so we there do have to be some more clever mechanisms for, for dealing with that and people are exploring that. Um, I think it's a federal, state and local matter to, to look at um, and, and we need to get them all excited about the opportunity. Jane, I, um, uh, recently Evan Walker died, um, have you, could you say a few words? Mm -hmm. Well Evan Walker was the Minister for Planning in the 80s and when I was working at the time in Fitzroy and all we ever wanted to do was to have him over for a cup of tea. <laughs> we thought he would be the nicest person to come for, and he, he was. He was a great planning minister, uh, ably supported by David Yenkin, who established Merchant Builders, the beginners, the, the developers of the cluster housing model, and gosh, if our greenfields had been developed on cluster housing principles, we would have a net gain in our greenfields rather than the battle of the biodiversity. But Evan has has died, he had a, a long illness. Um, his contribution to Melbourne, particularly vi envisioning a renewal opportunity at South Bank uh, and delivering it, well, just making got it there as well. There was a bit of a, uh, there were some ups and downs in the economic uh, solution for that, but, but he really was a, a tall man uh, and a great man and uh, Yes, you'll be sadly. He will be. We will. We will. We will. We will remember his legacy. Well said, Jane. Moving on to things that are exciting. Uh, what tech stuff excites you at the moment? Well, I'm really into. Um, Besides podcasts. Of po course. Well, podcasts <laughs> as, a, as a mechanism for getting ideas <laughs> out and exchanges of views. I think um, one of the things I'm really keen on is 3D modelling. So uh, when I was uh, in my former job, we decided that we needed... Uh, people called Urban Circus came on. That's probably using a, a trade name. But I was so blown away by the opportunity to really have, have real 3D modelling, not just SketchUp, uh, which is good, which is very good, but to be able to present uh, both uh, present both the vision in a 3D way, and then test the component parts as you deliver that vision uh, as a tool for talking with community. Uh, it, you can look at shadows and real time things. You can put people in the streets and get a feeling for how people move through spaces. You can put in trees and other things. You can. Uh, it's a just a fabulous tool and you can also I think link it to your statutory controls which we haven't got to that next layer of quite yet I think that there's a bit of exploration on that so because the GIS and so forth but I do think as a mechanism for for both speaking with communities designing up uh, presenting ideas evaluating has kind of multiple benefits so mm. um, it's certainly not a skill I have um, to be able to run these things, but we've got some fabulous uh, young people, often with a design background, who can just make these things really sing, mm. and they're fantastic. 
And your role with the MPA, um, part of your responsibility, I suppose, is um, coming up with new ideas and implementing those new ideas. Mm. Where do you find your new sources of ideas? Well, I've got, I work in the MPA with a, an extremely multidisciplinary team and I think that the collision of ideas from multidisciplinary teams is a classically, it's a fantastic way mm. to get to cross-fertilise and kind of come out with new ideas. I think that was why my time at the um, as chair of the Priority Development Panel was also a very fabulous time because of that clashing of a multidisciplinary team. I read broadly. I hardly read novels. I tend to read um, non-fiction, things like The Great London Stink, how sewerage was brought to London and uh, how the Underground Railway was built in, say, London. Or and I'm currently reading uh, Peter Gagiyama's book on love where you live, and he wrote also the book um, for the love of cities. Mm -hmm. So I like to understand people's points of view, how they how they might be um, dealing with cities. I'm a very boring person when I go travelling because I'm always <laughs> asking questions about how is the garbage removed here, or how does your electricity supply? This is the geologist's daughter coming through. <laughs> Jane, uh, any last ideas you'd like our listeners to mull over? Um, I think what I'd like to say, if this, um, if your audience has a, a planning bias or, a, I guess, a more of a built environment bias, I just think that we have to be champions for this profession that we're in and actually make out on a barbecue conversation that we're not the municipal dog catcher and that sort of thing, that we're out to uh, envisage and support the delivery of, of necessary and delightful change. And, to, and for us to stay positive in that space, I think that's uh, a, a key opportunity for being to remain, to be positive, because the future will only be positive if we're positive about the future. Jane, thank you so much for your time today. We hope you've enjoyed the opportunity to be involved. I know there'll be a lot of excited listeners out there eagerly awaiting the release of this podcast. Thank you also to all of you who've tuned into today's podcast. Just a reminder to our listeners to also check out our website, www.planningexchange.org, where you'll find further information on all of our past and future guests.